Well, welcome to episode nine now of Grit and Gladness. My name is Brooks, and as always, I'm joined with my wonderful wife, Laura. Hello. And we are here to encourage you, to exhort you, to help you become happier warriors in your corner of the kingdom as you engage life um, as a man, as a woman, um, all to the glory of God from a thoroughly, gladly biblical point of view. So that's what we are all about, and we appreciate you giving us a little bit of your time. So this has been a um, a good week for us thus far. Our kids are on fall break, um, and uh, a couple days ago, we had a um, a really wonderfully strange delight. Um, it turns out that there is an an alcove of Africa in the heart of Tennessee. Uh, so we took the kids to the safari park, and it turns out. Um, you can have your vehicle surrounded by zebras and giraffes and ostriches um, following you while you try to feed them and try to escape what feels like imminent danger. Um, so how was that experience for you, Laura? Well, it was pretty funny and um, don't know that I've ever been that close to an ostrich uh, <laughs> that was really wanting something from me. I kept rolling the window up and trying to hide. Um, but then the other thing that struck me was how clever the camels were mm. that they had learned that mm-hmm. if they could get the side of their feed the feed bucket right then they could just rip them right from our hands and they got the whole lot the so, whole thing yeah. um several times our buckets got ripped right out of our hands yeah um so I, if you follow me on facebook i plan on today throwing up some pictures there from it um but it was awesome um naturally we had the lion king um, theme songs, or what's that called? Soundtrack pumping through our vehicle. Um, and all was right with the world. So, um, yeah, who knew? If you live in Tennessee, uh, the Safari Park um, might be a fun um, escape for, for you and yours. Well, my sister did give us one tip. She said, don't strap the two-year-old into her car seat. <laughs> and I'm glad because the long neck ostriches could have really done some things to her if she hadn't had the freedom to run around the car. Yes. So. <laughs> but even there though, I kept telling the kids, if they get a hold of her shirt, you know, we might just lose her. So, um, just enough danger to feel alive. So it was good stuff. All right. Well, why don't we start off with our commonplace um, quotes for this week? Um, Laura, why don't you why don't you give us a go here? Okay, my quote for this week comes from um, the author David Wells out of a book, God in the Wasteland. And in that book, he writes, "Worldliness is what any particular culture does to make sin look normal and righteousness look strange." And when I heard that, it just struck me, um, it helped develop categories, categorical Mm. buckets for me to drag and drop the different things we see happening in our lives and in our world um, so that I can say, okay, that's worldliness. Um, It helped me to even navigate church culture, Mm. um, to to understand where there are pockets of worldliness um, in church culture as we try to strive towards Christian maturity? Um, where have we made peace with what uh, the world calls normal, which is the Bible would call sin? Mm-hmm. And then where have we made peace with righteousness being strange and failing to live up to God's standard? So it really helped expand a, um, a sorting bucket of, so- of, of sorts for me just so that I can navigate these very strange times. And then I have to say this 
a thing about the Webster's Dictionary making the change in real time. Yeah, so I, people who are listening may not even know about that, so why don't you tell us what, what happened there? Well, I vaguely know what initiated it. There was a senator that was appalled when Amy Coney Barrett used the phrase um, sexual preference mm -hmm. in discussing, um, I guess, the decision of Obergefell during her confirmation mm -hmm. hearings. And... Um, it was a little strange that that senator found that phrasing to be so um, offensive because we would say it was common. And in fact, in Merriam-Webster's dictionary that day that it was said and there was offense taken, it was used to communicate exactly what... Um, Amy Coney Barrett had intended. Right. So just to clarify a little bit. So Amy Coney Barrett had used the language of sexual preference. And then she was rebuked by saying that that is offensive and outdated and outrageous. What is preferred is, um, I don't even know if I can say that, what you need to say, what you have to say is sexual orientation because preference means that you could actually choose, but orientation says that it's immutable. Um, so if you would have went to the Merriam-Webster's definition of sexual preference just a couple weeks ago, sexual orientation, according to them, was one of the definitions of it. Um, but, but in real time, as that happened, that same day, the dictionary went and updated the definition for sexual preference now to include that it's offensive so that they would be in line with what... The senator had said. Right. And so I think just thinking about um, sin being normalized and uh, righteousness being strange, that helps me to even drag and drop that scenario into those buckets. So yeah. that's why that has been so helpful, and I, I hope it helps our listeners out there. Yeah, what, what's the quote again real quick? Um, it's David Wells in the book God in the Wasteland. And its worldliness is what any particular culture does to make sin look normal and righteousness look strange. Mm -hmm. And key words there, I think, are um, any particular culture. That can even be ch church culture. Mm -hmm. And we're not talking about only American culture at, at large. We're talking about the culture in your church, in my church, yeah. um, anything like that. Yeah, and, and, and as our culture careens towards more and more secularism we ought to look more and more strange but i mean because we're not going anywhere lord willing i mean we should be right here um but how often do we continue to not look all that different and so i, I think for me and you that's really been something we've been convicted of in the past couple of years i mean ever since we've been married is things that we had made peace with even shows that we would watch that really they glorified things that the lord says he abhors and we find ourselves just laughing along and we, I don't know, I think even in the last year really have purpose to, we were really not going to laugh at what the Lord says is abhorrent. Um, even if that shows that we would just assume we're, we're acceptable by everybody. Um, so obviously we're not doing it perfectly, but that, that has been a conviction of ours that's increased, I think. Well, and I think for the purposes of this podcast too, you can include under that any particular culture umbrella, your home culture. So there are things that we've normalized here that I need to really think through how we course correct mm -hmm. there, what repentance looks like and what um, really moving us more ever increasingly towards a righteous standard looks like. And then one verse that I, that came to mind, um, of course, the concept of being set apart 
is all throughout the Bible. I mean, God's people are to be set apart. That's what the word saint means, right? Um, right. And, or I would say holy means to be set apart. Yes. Mm -hmm. Saint, actually, I think is called out ones, okay. which, which is the same. Right. The same idea. So, um, as, as darkness and light get more contrasted, we really are going to look more and more peculiar or strange and we should. And then I thought about James one twenty seven, the last little tag, which really doesn't get much play. We know the, um, religion that is pure and undefiled before the, before God, the father is this to visit orphans and widows in their distress or affliction. But the last tag says, and to keep oneself from being unblemished or polluted by unstained from the world. The world. That's really interesting. I've, so this is real time processing for me. I did not, <laughs> um, we haven't even talked through any of this, um, before we hit record, but that verse, as you can imagine, James one twenty seven, struck me with incredible, wait when me and you first started talking because um you were you were widowed as our listeners most of them probably know um and in a sense our um your your children were, were left without without a father figure um and so i felt the weight of that where wow this feels very practical to go and visit a widow in her affliction but i had never considered the back half until you just said that and perhaps that's the lord maturing me and kind of filling that out um now that i've done the first half okay now get after not being blemished by the world um, even presumptuously so. So, wow, that's good. <laughs> that's okay. all I've got. Okay, my my commonplace um, entry for this week is, it's from a book that I'm reading um, called The Man Who Was Thursday. And it's by one of my favorite authors ever, um, G.K. Chesterton. Chesterton, if you've never read Chesterton, just just Google some quotes by him. He is Bizarre, wonderful, peculiar, absolutely insightful and brilliant. And this book is wild. The Man Who Was Thursday. It's I, I can't even give you a brief overview because it's so just out there, but so good. His inventiveness with his use of language is incredible. I, I was even thinking of how can I describe the glory of his usage of words? And and one metaphor that came to mind, if 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 words were like bottle rockets, Chesterton in The Man Who Was Thursday, it's it's a perpetual grand finale of fireworks going on. I mean, every all of his words are so well-placed and so unexpected, but so brilliant. He's a, a master of alliteration and metaphor and paradox. And so I've just absolutely relished it. But this one, so here's this. This um, a couple sentences from the, this one part. So to catch you up to speed, there is this guy who's part of this plot, but he's undercover, so nobody else knows who he really is, and so he feels all alone until he meets somebody else in town who knows who he is and is kind of in with him on this plot that's happening, and so they um, start to compare stories, and um, and it says this: um, in that place they dined and slept, um, both very thoroughly. The beans and bacon, which these unaccountable people cooked well, the astonishing emergence of Burgundy from their cellars, crowned Syme's sense of a new comradeship and comfort. And then here's, here's the meat of it. Through all this ordeal, his root horror had been isolation. And there are no words to express the abyss between isolation and having one ally. 
It may be conceded to the mathematicians that 4 is twice 2, but 2 is not twice 1. 2 is 2,000 times 1. That is why, in spite of a hundred disadvantages, the world will always return to monogamy. <laughs> and that, I thought, was so brilliant and, and such a wonderful um, nod towards even marriage. Um, how one plus one is not two, it, it's 2,000. And the massive abyss between being alone and having one companion in this life. And so it, it made me just more thankful for, for you, Laura, and for for the gift of marriage and just thought it was beautifully said. Well, I'm thankful for that summary because for those of us that are not math minded, <laughs> Brooks is often bewildered at how not math minded I am. It's true. Um, our brains turn to mush during that little twice four and twice two and right. all that. But thank you for that summation. One thing I wanted to make sure I said, um, if ever you think that it's lost on Brooks and I that there's so much good in the world I want to make sure I make a plug here that there is so much good in the world. Mm. And we were delighted to know that that, that manuscript from The Man Who Was Thursday, I don't know, maybe you can find that book somewhere. But mm. one cool thing that Amazon is doing is it's taking old stories like that. And when we ordered that, they printed it, they compiled that into book form, like for you, for that purchase. Right, in real time. And so that is just such a, um, it, there's so much good in the world. Mm -hmm. And I, I just think what a gift that is to our generation that mm -hmm. we can get these old, probably out of published books in real time through Amazon in a, in a matter of days. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I just wanted to make a plug for look around, let your heart expand with gratitude. There is so much yeah. good. Well, yeah, and I think that even goes back to our heart behind this whole podcast is grit and gladness. Because when, when we look around, it's so easy to become the the cynic. But but the cynic is one who sees the bad but knows nothing of Christ, knows nothing of the resurrection, knows nothing of the glory of God. Um, um, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And what's incredible, incredible about that is man ought to have not fallen short of the glory of God. We were created to, to live up into imaging the glory of God accurately. And so that's why sin is so terrible. It's not because it's you got the wrong answers on a test. It's because this diminishes the glory of God and the world should be teeming with mirrors reflecting the glory of God and... Um, yeah. We don't want to become crusty and whatever Chesterton <laughs> would put with that as an appropriate alliteration. Oh, I'm sure he for... would have a very <laughs> brutal diagnosis for the cynic. For our, our podcast, uh, Cynical and Crusty. So I just wanted, <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to say yeah, there is good. so much good. Absolutely. Well, and that's, that's why we're fighting because it's so worth fighting for. Um, read G.K. Chesterton. Read The Man Who Was Thursday. It's so, so delightful. So... Okay, well, um, that uh, I would just say, um, it, perhaps it could be delightful even in in your marriage for, for for those who are who are listening who are married to have a rhythm of commonplace sharing even in your own marriage once a week, maybe a Sunday evening, um, have a place where uh, you share with each other what's something that's that's been helpful for you this week or that's really stuck with you. Um, perhaps that could be a a good way to to um just draw water out from each other's souls um, in ways that you wouldn't have got before. So, well, let's transition now to our, our book studies, Laura. Um, you want to kick us off here? Sure. Um, last week we discussed uh, chapters, 
10 and 11 of The Excellent Wife by Martha Peace. And um, chapter 10 covers the uh, excellent wife's faithful commitment to respecting her husband. And then chapter 11 covers intimacy. Um, so some things that struck me in this respect chapter is she takes the Greek word uh, respect and then um, puts it in um, a definition that we could then kind of chew on as we went throughout the chapter. Um, and what she says is the definition is to be in awe of, to revere, to reverence, or to treat someone as special. And um, then she used the Amplified Bible, which can be so helpful in your Bible study, um, where the passage says, see to it that the wife respects and reverences her husband out of Ephesians 5.33. She said that the Amplified Bible says that she notices him, regards him, honors him, prefers him, venerates and esteems him, and that she defers to him, praises him, and loves and admires him exceedingly. And so um, some things for husbands and wives to think through with that is um, this is regarding his position, not even his personality. This mm -hmm. is regarding his position in the home and in the a marriage relationship. Um, as I was talking through those things, um, so we talked about even some small ways that a wife can do this. And I remember my mom talking about how her mother, which she had 10 children mm -hmm. and her husband was a coal miner and a farmer. And, um, when her mother would cook lunch for him and the farmhands, um, she would insist that her, the father and the workmen go through the line first. And even if it meant, and sometimes it did, that she then had to prepare lunch a second time so that all the children could be fed, that's what it meant. Mm -hmm. And so she just showed the, and modeled for the children in their home that we put dad first, mm -hmm. he works hard for us, and he has a place of honor in this family. And um, so we just talked about little ways that um, wives can do the work of noticing, regarding, honoring, preferring. Um, their husbands and help build this concept of regard for the the husband in the home, in the community, those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. um, we also talked about the concept of honor isn't really something you can bestow on yourself. It's something that someone else, um, help me with my word here, g gives to you or creates uh, yeah. for you. Um, Not vicarious, but I, I know what you're saying. Uh, honor... Um, yeah, you, you can't demand honor, so somebody else has to honor you, and that gives you honor, in a sense. Right, so even as wives, as we're thinking about um, our roles in, let's say, like family devotion time, um, perhaps our role is as disciplinarian, while uh, your husband is able to read and pray and lead in those settings, um, and just helping if you have little ones, if you have children, if you have teenagers, helping them to see that mom requires us to honor dad. Mm -hmm. Um, so those yeah. kinds of things. Yeah. I, I, even just as you're saying that too, I, I, I think about, um, the challenge of honoring, let's say a husband isn't honorable. 
and, and the real challenge of that. And it made me think of, I, I think it's Romans 12, where Paul talks about not repaying evil for evil. Um, why? Um, because in so doing, you will heap burning coals on their head. And there is a certain thing that happens when somebody who knows they've not been honorable is treated honorable, that the Lord use that, uses that as a sort of conviction to, to then call them up to something higher. I think it even goes with that First Peter 3 again, how a man can be one without a word um, when he sees your respectable conduct. Um, and so I, I think that would be my, an encouragement to, to women. As men, when we are honored and we know we didn't deserve it, it, it is a powerful thing. Um, it's almost like don't dress for the job you have just for the job you want don't treat the uh, the husband you have the way he deserves to be treated treat him the way you want you would want to treat a husband who's worthy of that if, if that makes sense and, and that's really is cutting with the grain of how the holy spirit sanctifies men in a certain way um and and i would say for men too um we need to be doing this all equally with with the with our wives um if our wives have house rules we should be the most eager to um, um, submit to them um, and show the children. If if when mom has uh, says something, I'm the first to honor it, to to bless it. Um, if um, mom is ever disrespected, the, the husband should immediately be the first to let them know that will never happen on his watch, not not in his home. There's always a his shadow is looming behind her, and he holds her in, in high honor. Um, it reminds me of that passage, and I want to say it's in Hebrews that says outdo one wondered, another was, yeah. in showing honor, but it could be in Romans. I was thinking that right now in real time as well. Yeah. Like if ever that should be displayed, um, let it let that be in, in our marriages. Let's mm-hmm. outdo one another in showing honor. And oh my gosh, what a what a powerful testimony to our children when they see us honoring each other with with delight, um, and then repenting. In front of them when, when we haven't um it's, it's just it's powerful so um our discussion and lesson went through the undeserving husband and the unbelieving husband mm. and how you are to um submit yourself to the lord even in those situations where they don't deserve it and i really appreciate your words there um hits on a lot of what she um she talked about uh, one other thing that was really helpful in this lesson was um, to see to it that the wife behaves in a respectable manner and that sounds silly kind of but what what it has provoked in me this week is to pray for a thorough thoroughly sanctifying work even in my conduct in my countenance so from the root system of your heart all the way through to your face, uh, to your willing hands working in the home, all of those things, um, to just pray that the Lord would thoroughly sanctify you um, so that in your conduct, in your behavior, in your countenance, in every way that your husband is um, honored and regarded, noticed and preferred, and I think um, when I'm thinking on that, I'm, I'm thinking of how the Bible describes um, eye service and mm. not doing that. And, um, you know, you can obey uh, outwardly and inwardly put up many, many, many layers of resistance mm-hmm. um, and even display that resistance on your countenance and in mm-hmm. your conduct. And I, 
I think um, just encouraging the ladies to, to be very mindful that thorough sanctification is the goal here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that, whole, that old saying, you know, mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. And, and that's a saying for, for a reason. I mean, the, the Lord has bestowed an incredible power of presence in the feminine soul, in the home. Um, and and that's that that's a, a burden and a responsibility to bear. But I, I can just attest, um, even with you, Laura. You know, it, when um, how powerful your presence is in our home, and how the entire everything's right with the world <laughs> um, when when there's joy, um, and how eager I, I am, to, I want to fan that into flame and to encourage you in in that direction. So, um, yeah. But. Yeah, and then she talked through. Um, how to reprove your husband respectfully. Hmm. I think one thing I really appreciate about this book is that she doesn't leave this vacuum of not accounting for, well, what about the sin, you know, that's, mm-hmm. that's in the marriage relationship, because certainly there will be that. Um, she goes ahead and addresses that and gives tips on how to um, correct, reprove gently, respectfully, um, and you can still say, you know, respectfully, I think you're wrong here. Um, and I would hope that no wife ever feels like I'm not giving them license to do that. I think rather than um, even thinking about it in terms of license, I would be wanting to coach them well on how to do that in the most effective way. Right. Um, to where you're really appealing to a heart. Um, and so... Uh, if you can be respectful when you say, you know, I really feel like you were wrong here or whatever, I think that your audience is going to be so much more receptive to what you have to say. And effectiveness really does need to be our goal, mm-hmm. to be effective ministers to one another, to be helpful to one another. Yeah. yeah. And not just wounding. So um, the next chapter was the wife's faithful commitment to intimacy and we just talked through what um, the intimate relationship between husband and wife should be, that it's holy and good, that um, it's pleasurable and fruitful, and it's not sinful, um, that it's other-oriented and not self-oriented. I think people can fall off in a ditch there, being self-oriented with um, uh, their intimacy. And that it should be regular and continuous. Um, it should never be a bargained for exchange. Uh, that's another common ditch that people fall into. Um, and that it should be equal and reciprocal. I think if you fall into the ditch of one person always initiating and the other person always begrudgingly giving in, um, you're not doing that sexual relationship the way that God intends. Mm-hmm. And... Um, you know, for spouses, that's going to look different. It could be that um, one spouse needs to really spend all day kind of getting themselves in the right mindset for how they're going to serve their spouse that evening or or whatever. Um, I just think rather than giving yourself the excuse or the out of all the things that we could give ourselves excuses about, if we were truly seeking to serve one another in this way as God intends, there would be much beauty, much fruitfulness, pleasure, faithfulness would increase, um, and it would be a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I wonder if 
sometimes um, because of dynamics in the marriage, inevitably intimacy will suffer. And we almost make peace with, well, this is just kind of where it's at and, and it's, it's, we're never going to rise above this, this level of whatever. And I think I, I would encourage couples who are there to have a, an honest talk about getting a, a biblical vision for the delight God really wants you to have in that place. Like God really isn't a buzzkill. The pleasure isn't a unexpected byproduct. Like he's like, well, we need more kids. Well, that's convenient that that turned out to be pleasurable. It, it is a gift of God that is to be stewarded well. And, and so if we really have hit a rut, we would do well to, to come together and to have an honest conversation about that and, and pray that the Lord would do a fresh work of delight in you. Um, I, I just, I I love Song of Solomon. I love that that's in the Bible. It, it shows us the playfulness that the Lord desires for us um, to have in marriage, to really enjoy each other. And it talks about in Proverbs, even this week, I, I was thinking about this, how it, it, it tells the man to be um, to to be drawn towards the wife of his youth and to be intoxicated by her love. And he wouldn't have to tell him that if it was just natural. You don't have to tell somebody to do something that comes natural. But I think it's giving just wisdom to the reality that in marriage, man, things can cool down. And don't when that happens, fight back against that. Go in and, and be intoxicated again with the wife of your youth. Like hearken back to those days and dream t- together about how things were and, and how the Lord desires for that to return even now. Um, so, well, and <laughs> I, I just have to say for the ladies too, this was fun because um, they're always not always, and I shouldn't say all ladies, but some ladies are like, well, where do I get to be in charge? Hmm. And so it was fun to look at First Corinthians chapter 7 where it says um, that the wife does not have authority over her own body in the sexual relationship, nor does the husband have authority <laughs> over his own body. So right. I'm like, right there, ladies, that's where you get to exercise all your authority. Right. Um, and so that was fun to talk through that. And um, I think taking the long view in seasons is a good thing to do um but i do even in saying that i want to be careful that i'm not giving permission to waving the white flag of surrender on things that really christian marriages shouldn't surrender Mm -hmm. um you're one of the i did uh four talking or four f's for our lesson here and it was fruitfulness which of course is childbearing and nurturing children faithfulness to increase fidelity to ensure that um, you're a safe place for your spouse fulfillment and fun and i think that the the fulfillment part we talked about how you can sometimes go to a really expensive restaurant and come away only half satisfied because though the one morsel you purchased was really great it wasn't satisfying because there wasn't enough of it Mm. (laughs) and i think um you know you don't want to be like that you want to be satiating each other's desires and um really serving each other in this way that's Mm -hmm. part of the reason god's given you to each other well yeah and and, i mean this is thoroughly biblical um biblical first corinthians 7 5 just came to mind it says uh do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come back together 
so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I do think it's safe to say that a a sexless Christian marriage is a very dangerous marriage. Um, That's that's exactly what the text is saying. Make sure that you are enjoying each other, because if not, um, nature abhors a vacuum, and it will try to try to fill itself elsewhere. Um, yeah, and I think I would encourage you too, if if this really is um, if the marriage bed is is a place of frustration for for you, um, to seek out a a really trusted older couple and. And get some counsel. I mean, it's it's sometimes we, we need older Christian brothers and sisters to help us navigate some of these um, things in marriage. Um, so would you agree with that? Or Absolutely. And I want to say this too. Um, I think that if this part of your marriage is off, if there's too much space and time, if there's not this, if it's just not clipping along nicely here in this area, Something that can happen is you can really start seeing your spouse through like funhouse mirrors and everything. So where it was talking about Satan tempting, it could even be like not you're tempted towards pornography or you're going to get in another relationship. But it could just be that you just start despising your spouse because you're seeing them through this wonky mirror. And I think something that sex does that's so beautiful is... It, especially in the woman, uh, chemically, it releases a pair bonding hormone called oxytocin, mm-hmm. and it makes you bond with that person. And it's funny how they're the same person. You were just viewing them through a wonky lens, and mm-hmm. then the lens is like corrected. You now have your corrective lens on, right. and um, you're not being tempted in, even just to grumble against or sin against your partner. Um, just because you're in a sexless marriage. Mm-hmm. And so I would just say, I feel like it is such a a tool, a gift that God gives to just bring about mutual admiration mm-hmm. and bonding and togetherness and camaraderie and intimacy. I mean, that's yeah. what all of that is. And yeah. so if you get to a place where it's been a long time since you've had uh, relations with your spouse, and you hate them. <laughs> <laughs> I would say those two are those two things may be more connected than you realize. Yeah, yeah. I love that, Laura. Um, mutual admiration. That's that's a beautiful thought. Um, yeah, and this is just very practical. But what's what's true is is men's insecurity is always going to be around performance. That's how men are built, and a woman's insecurity is always going to be around appearance. And to have that in mind, the insecurity of your spouse naturally, and to uh, feed their soul, make it a point that I'm going to encourage them, I'm going to let them know um, how much I enjoy them, Um, and that's going to look different for a man and for a woman because of how we're standardly wired. Um, But love is kind, and it's kind to encourage each other, um, and to delight in each other, and and to be open about that. So, I didn't even know we were going here, but... uh. (laughs) <laughs> this is this is great. Okay, is that is that what you got? It is. Thank you, babe. I appreciate that. All right. Well, I will go through mine here. Um, we were last week in chapters ten and eleven of Father Hunger. So, um, if you're new to the podcast, I'm taking some guys through a book called Father Hunger by Douglas Wilson. Chapters ten and eleven. Um, chapter ten is called Church Fathers. Ha. And chapter eleven is called Conflicted Feminism. So, I will just hit on a few points that we. 
um, camped out on. First, um, I'll start with the beginning of, of chapter 11. He says, One of the fundamental qualifications for church leadership in the New Testament is that we must have men who know what it means to be a father. If we continue to ignore the obvious, it gets pretty complicated. Because we don't understand how imitation governs the world, we have neglected one of the fundamental realities that we are supposed to imitate. As a result, everything downstream from there goes all to pieces. Consider Paul's word, words to Timothy, and this is 1 Timothy 3, 4-5. through 5. Speaking of the one who desires to be an elder, he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? And I, I said to the men how um, uh, we could say, well, I don't desire to be an elder, so I just check out during that list. But, but as men, we, we don't have that luxury because all eldership is, or rather all elder qualification, all that is is Christian maturity in a man. Every Christian man should desire not necessarily to be an elder, but to be elder qualified. That's, that's just basic Christian maturity, which means all of us as men should aspire to get to the place where we say to the younger men in the church, follow me here. I, I know how to manage my household. I know what it means to be a father. I have a biblical vision for that. I am growing in that. And look at the fruit of my home, and I want you to imitate that. Um, and, and many men would um, shudder to, to, to think that they would ask people to imitate them. Sometimes it's false humility, um, but sometimes it's because they've never even considered that they should be somebody that Christian men in the church should follow. Um, but that's the point he's making is this is part of the problem in the church is, is men— aren't being informed biblically on what it means to be a man and what it means to be a father because of the gender confusion in our time and the attack on masculinity so that so they don't have a confidence in their role and so there is a dearth of exemplars or or mentors in the church but um we we need to recover that and and we need to see uh, and this is in line even a lot with last week but how um the new testament encourages us to view ourselves as growing up into mentors for other men um, in the church. And Paul talks about this as well in, in 1 Corinthians 4, 14 through 17. Here is where he, he talks about how he is a, a father to them. So I'll get to that part in a, section, in a second. Um, but he starts off by saying, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. And, and I, I, I hit pause there in our time together um, because I think he hits on such an important point for our time in that one verse. Let me read it one more time. So he, he, he's about to talk about how he's a father to them um, and about imitation and, and these things. But first he says, I don't write these things to you to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. And the point that is important there is he recognizes what I'm about to say could make you feel ashamed. And he's saying, don't do that, though. Don't go there. Um, don't check out just because this is hard. Receive this as uh, an admonishment, not as shame. 
And in our culture, we have postured ourselves in such a way that if something makes me even feel the slightest twinge of shame, whatever made me feel that way needs to be silenced or is bad or ought not have done that. Um, and, and it's made us, um, it's almost inoculated us from being able to sometimes hear hard exhortation or admonishment. And part of our, I think, arrested development in Christian maturity is because we, we check out when, when, when something makes us initially feel a twinge of shame. But Paul is saying, okay, what I'm about to say could make you feel that way, but don't feel that way. Don't, don't let it land there. Know that this is admonishment for you. And so I, I think even in light of both of our book studies, Me to the Men and Lord to the Women, I, I would encourage you to keep 1 Corinthians 4, 14 in your back pocket. Uh, if something is, is a hard word that is from the Bible, it doesn't need to make you feel ashamed. Now, you can choose to feel shame and say, well, I, I'm just the worst, and I, I yeah, this is just, uh, I will never get better than this. And Paul is saying, no. This is admonishment, man. This is good stuff. So receive it as encouragement, not as a shame. Well, um, and if it does make you feel ashamed, I think rather than just shut that down, turn the noise off, run away, build a different covering, you need to pull on the thread of shame because it's likely pointing to sin and it needs the good news of Jesus Christ to cover it. Mm-hmm. There's not, you can't shut down the person that's saying the truth that's making you feel shame and then escape the sin pattern. Mm -hmm. That's not how we, that's not how any of this works. Right. Um, I was thinking about uh, from our reading this week, 2 Thessalonians, he uses this phrase um, talking about a brother. It's um, chapter 3, verse. 14, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Mm -hmm. And so it's not that you're absolved from the feeling of shame. It's for the Christian. You go, why do I feel shame when I become aware of this truth? Should I crucify this with Jesus and receive the... um, receive the the good news that I don't have to live there Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because it could be that it's really helping you decode a sin pattern. Right. Right. Things that are shameful. It is a healthy response to feel shame for that. Right. Now the enemy wants you to stay there and wants you to build a, build a home there, but that's the whole point of the gospel. It's good news for people to have a lot of bad news. Right, and I think going back to that quote about sin being normalized and righteousness being strange, um, one theme that you see in our the way we talk in the church is that nobody should ever make you feel ashamed. Well, that's not biblical. That's not the way the Bible talks about it. Mm-hmm. Now, the Bible certainly says there is no condemnation right. for those who are in Christ, right. but that doesn't mean that even those who are in Christ can't fall into sin and sin brings shame, mm-hmm. and shame should send us running right. like a scalded dog <laughs> towards the cross, saying, 
I've messed up. I yeah. need to agree with you and confess the sin and then do life your way through repentance. Mm-hmm. And I need the cleansing that comes from that. So I just want to make that plug. No, I, I, I think it's, it's hugely important. I mean, and that's, yeah, that's what Paul's getting at. Um, this is admonishment. Now, yeah, in the sanctifying work of Christian maturity, um, there are going to be hard words when, when you realize, yeah, you know what? I have blown it for a long time here. That's hard. And that is worth grieving over. And then you take it to the cross where you see that Jesus bore that already. He's paid the price for it. And there's no condemnation now. And so now we can be built up and live lives worthy of the gospel. Um, that's, that's so good. So I'll, I'll go on from there. He goes, for though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. This is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ. Um, so the only way you could confidently tell somebody, hey, be, be an imitator of me, is if you have a biblical vision of what God has called you to as a man, a man who takes glad responsi- um, glad assumption of, of sacrificial responsibility in their home, um, and he goes to, to talk about how there really has been a, a feminism um, or rather a feminizing happening in, in pastoral leadership where masculine qualities are, are not appreciated much anymore, like, um, cur- like courage or fortitude um, and how if the pulpit and the pastorate becomes more feminized then women naturally will be better at the job. And, and you've seen a, a huge uptick in women's ordination. Um, and, and he speaks on this. And I think it's a really important point ab- about why God says a, a woman ought not be a pastor. He says this, why is it not permissible for a woman to raise her hands to give a ministerial blessing as pastor? As we know, Paul forbids it in first Timothy two twelve. But why? It is not because Paul believes women to be incapable of the requisite knowledge or that he thinks women cannot exhibit the necessary godly character. No, the reason is her body. Women can't be ministers because they are women. Women have breasts and wombs, and the presence of breasts and wombs matter. Women were embodied with a different calling than was assigned to men when they were given their bodies. Bodies matter. I do not want anyone to mistake me here. Let me be frank. If sermon content were the only thing that mattered, I can think of quite a few unordained women whom I would rather listen to than quite a few ordained men. But the content is not the issue. For some people in the church, that paragraph will make you cringe. Why can't women be pastors? Because they are women. And that cringing is what's wrong with so much of the church. It is unbelief in what God has said is good, true, and beautiful. It is not realizing that when God made women, he made them with a peculiar glory and a peculiar function that is to glorify him. And when he made men, he made them with a peculiar glory and a peculiar way that they were called to glorify him. And so we we need to just get it settled about Whenever God speaks on the roles of men and women, we are to celebrate it. Um, how in the world will we 
raise sturdy Christian women and sturdy Christian men um, in our home if we don't celebrate the peculiar glory of what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman and to say, yeah, the, the, the reason uh, a woman isn't a pastor is because she's a woman. And I could care less what culture says, <laughs> um, a godless Bible-denying culture. The Lord knew exactly what he was doing, and that is a good and right thing. Um, and, and we pointed to Romans 12 to, to put more Bible under this. And, and I really had never thought of this verse in this context before. Um, but man, it was really illuminating. It says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And even that language of, as men and women, we um, present our bodies, our masculinity, our femininity, back to God as a living sacrifice, asking, okay, how do I glorify you best with what you've created me to be? Um, so one of the calls at, for men as heads of our households is to disciple our families to understand why bodies matter, including helping our, our um, daughters and our sons understand their peculiar glory. Um, so that was the f- chapter 10 there. Um, I'd be curious, Lori, even for you as a, you know, a strong, very competent, independent woman, uh, how does that land on you? Well, I've just been sitting here thinking, and I hope I can make some good connections. It's hard sometimes in real time um, to, to formulate all of this. So this is rough draft, and we'll sort through it at some point. But um, even today, we got to go to a park local to us, and our two-year-old girl was without her siblings, which she draws a lot of strength from. And so she was just with mom and dad, which is a rarity for her. And... Um, I noticed that she was very fearful of climbing ladders and there was this one little thing that looked like a beanstalk and she had one little bobble and that was terrifying to her. And um, it was very interesting, Brooks, to watch you encourage her, oh, you've got that, you can do that. All you do is take the next step, put your hand here. And um, when I think about what it was that I think the word imbibed is the right word for this that gave me the ability to do courageous things part of it I have to honor my dad in um, he never um, became feminine with me he stayed masculine and it helped me to then see how I could borrow from his courageousness I could engage the world with bravery and that that was something that was borrowed it wasn't my own Mm. and so i think um and even like even in my first marriage that was something that i had to learn and i borrowed from kelly was his bravery his courage i think from you i borrow from you your conviction your um you know your willingness uh, not to fear man and say uh things that are going to upset people and um, and just the winsome way that you do that. And, and so I think part of what has helped make me a very strong, courageous woman who 
can accept my God-given role, but also go out into the world with lots of bravery and courage is by having really strong masculine exuding men around me and seeing that for the gift that it is. Mm. So I hope that makes a cohesive thought. Yeah, yeah. Um, absolutely. But even as you were talking, I was just thinking, you know, I am so thankful to have had the kind of father that I could draw um, a, a vision, an idea of what courage and bravery actually looks like from him, mm-hmm. even though it was a borrowed concept for myself. Yeah, yeah. That's good. Well, I I just more and more feel um, going back to verses in the Bible, even specifically about gender roles that make us perhaps uncomfortable. We really need to deal with that. Um, if when the work of interpretation is done, if if you're unsettled by it, that is something you need to pray through because we. God will look upon the ones who tremble at his word. And we have been so catechized by culture to be ashamed of what God has said. Um, And I want to push back against that with all my might. If the Lord has said it, it is good, true, and beautiful. It is for his glory. It's for our flourishing. Um, I just appreciated the way he put a highlighter on there and confronts you with that. um, and, And essentially says, if that makes you uncomfortable, that's because you don't trust the word of God. And, and that's a good thing to be confronted with. One other thing I would say for, for the ladies is um, knowing your true identity in Christ and how God intended you to be and how he created you, uh, far from that making you weaker, I think it makes you stronger. And when we look at Proverbs 31, we see she is clothed with dignity and strength. Like mm-hmm. she, Her arms are girded up with strength. And I think that that is what you're really going to encounter from a woman who knows who they are in Christ, what God's design for them was. You're going to encounter just a a spiritual giant, really. Mm. Um, Someone with lots of emotional, spiritual fortitude um, that can can look at life and and laugh at the days to come. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll touch on chapter 11 for the sake of time. I'll, I'll make it, I'll make it quick, but it's called conflicted feminism. And, and the point he makes, and it's a really insightful, important chapter is how, um, how really the, the feminist is conflicted because she is a wanting, she, she's fighting for this equality as the world calls it. And I can do anything a man can do, but how really inside she, she desperately wants a man to um, lead her and to be strong for her and a safe place that she can come alongside and and how this causes a, a real tumult and and he talks about where the, where that comes from first it's um in Genesis three we see part of the um, curse is um, a woman's d- desire will will be um, in a sense to co-opt or rule over her husband even though he will be the head of her and how that will lead to real tension and how that's something the woman is called to fight now of course as we've talked about many times the man's sin tendency will be to abdicate and to say well then well then go ahead and that's that's what we're happening but he also talks about the importance of under again understanding worldview and that evolutionary thinking has consequences and part of what we're seeing now is the downstream confident um, consequences of embracing an evolutionary worldview where um, you can evolve into anything you you want to be um, so worldviews and ideas have consequences. And so we're, we're seeing that now um, where 
essentially the curse pronounced upon Genesis three of re- gender tension. Um, there, the the fighting against that is just completely stopped. Um, we have just given ourselves fully over to to that to that tension um, and have um, unfettered ourselves from from what God has has called us to. Um, and how do we re how do we recover that then? How do we realign ourselves as men and as women? And um, this one quote I just thought was really insightful. He said, "If we want out of this standoff, this kind of masculine femininity tension that that we experience in our culture, if we want out of this standoff, we have to do it God's way. The men don't get their way, and the women don't get theirs. God gets His way. This means." That women need to recognize that feminism is one of the worst enemies that women have ever had right after men. So we have to think through this issue carefully. We're not going to be able to sort out the horizontal problems we have between the sexes until we sort out the problems that both sexes have with their God in heaven. And he talks about how the way to, to correct all of this is not dealing with each other first, but dealing with our God first. And what has God called us to? And not just asking what God has called us to in the Bible, but worshiping God. And when we worship our Father in heaven, things just orient themselves rightly. Um, 2 Corinthians 3, uh, 18 talks about this. It says, We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So something that Wilson often says, which I appreciate, is worship really is our warfare. Worship is our warfare. And when we worship God in spirit and in truth, it is a grand orientator. It sets it's a great, call it spiritual chiropractic. It aligns things. It aligns um, our desire to please God and to trust God. It shows us how we were created to glorify God in the body that he has given to us. And um, he quotes from a guy named G.K. Beale in this chapter, and I thought this was really insightful. He says, God has made humans to reflect him. If they do not commit themselves to him, they will not reflect him, but something else in creation. At the core of our beings, we are imaging creatures. It is not possible possible to be neutral on this uh, on this issue. We either reflect the creator or something in creation. And and that phrase that we are imaging creatures really landed on me. And that's why um, worship is so important and how what we worship will then reflect who we are becoming. So if we worship human autonomy and self-realization as I define, then it will spin off into a hundred chaotic expressions. But if we worship God in spirit and in truth, we will then image God accurately. The Holy Spirit will refine our desires and we will be eager to glorify God with our lives on, on his terms. So, man, there's one more great quote here. You know, I think I'll save it for next time because we're at the hour mark. Um, but, uh, yeah, any, any last thoughts on that, Laura? 
No, I'm just so thankful um, that you're leading guys through this thoughtful, um, thought-provoking um, book because there's so much sorting work we need to do from the messaging that we mm-hmm. hear from the world. And Yeah, yeah, there, there really is. All right, well, thank you guys again um, for tuning in. Let me um, pray for us and commend our time here to the Lord. Heavenly Father, um, these are some some deep waters for for us. We um, have been a people who have not um, trembled at your word as we ought to, and and that's just true. I, I know for much of my life I did not, and so I, I'm in that category as well. Um, and I pray, Lord, that you would be pleased to do a refining work in our midst, that you would turn the hearts of your people and, and the city back to you, and that we would be a people who revere you, who reverence you, who tremble at your word, who just, it's a grand, of course, that the creator of all knows what's best. It, it's, it's a grand, of course, that we ought to glorify God in the way that he designed us. So so we start, Lord, with, with repentance, um, realizing that we have been incredibly influenced by culture, um, and we come with the grand comfort of, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came to proclaim good news to a people that were riddled with bad news. And so I thank you, Lord, that even if, as we engage um, some things that will necessarily require repentance of us, um, that we know there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Um, we are called now to to live lives worthy of the gospel, not to gain an identity, but from our identity as sons and daughters. And so, Jesus, we thank you for your obedience. Um, all that you did to um, save us, all that you did to um, secure our um, right standing with the Father and Holy Spirit, thank you for the way that you are now continuing to refine our affections. Thank you that you really are committed to um, making us become more and more each day who we've already been declared, namely holy and and righteous. You you are doing a good sanctifying work in our midst. I pray that you would make us um, courageous and um, and happy warriors, even as we come to terms with with um, areas of growth that you are calling us to. Um, and I pray for. Um, all the husbands, that you would give them wisdom, you'd give them a prophetic vision for their home as they um, know well the condition of their flock. Um, show them what faithful leadership looks like there. And um, for all the women and all the wives, I pray that you would give them feminine courage as they subdue their corner of the kingdom, as they care for their homes, as they care for their kids, um, as they do all that you've called them to do. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, again, our um, intro and outro music was supplied by our dear friends, The Lockwoods, and you can check them out at Spotify.